Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Peter J. Conradi, uh, Murdoch biographer and, and friend, of course, close friend, author of his own literary critical work and his own autobiography, Family Business, which was published in 2019. Peter is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and he published Murdoch's authorised biography in 2001. Uh, he also published a study of her novels, uh, The Saint and the Artist, which I'm sure uh, many of you listening to have got. Uh, and and Edith's essay is absolutely essential, I think, Existentialists and Mystics. He's also written studies of the Welsh March, which is at the Bright Hem of God, Coming uh, a Buddhist in Going Buddhist, and also Frank Thompson's biography. So in this podcast, um, we're going to be discussing um, his own autobiography that came out recently, as well as reflecting on the 20th anniversary of the publication of Iris Murdoch and Life. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you again. It's nice to be here. Excellent. Yeah, we had a, had so much fun on the our earlier edition uh, discussing with uh, Garth and Catherine um, the defeat, of course. And there's so much I'd like to ask you, but I'd like to start beginning, if I may, with your early life. Because in the prologue to Family Business, um, you say you consider the two halves of your life as being a kind of knight errant. Um, looking back now, do you think that, um, that role has almost de defined how you perceive your early life and indeed your later career in some way? Well, I, I wrote it quite recently, so I haven't had time to change my view. <laughs> yes, that, that was an attempt to make sense of my long discipleship to and with Dame Iris, my friendship, my championing of her. And I was trying to find a link between that and my early childhood where I spent nearly 30 years defending my mother against the world and against my father. And it suddenly occurred to me that um, I, I was kind of, uh, I was schooled to be a knight errant, to be uh, to be chivalrous mm. towards. Well, you're supposed to be chivalrous towards damsels in distress. And what's I suppose actually notable about both my mother and Dame Iris is how incredibly tough they both were. I don't think they needed me, as it were. But um, uh, I'm I'm happy to have played that role and 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 delighted in in the case of Dame Iris because I think. Uh, who your first, who 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 writes the first bi or the first biography, mm. is consequential, and for good. And it was something, Philippa Foot, a close friend of Iris's and indeed of, of ours, um, emphasised to me that the first biography matters. It may be contested, it may be quarrelled with, it may be, it will have to be revised but uh, it should set a, a certain tone. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry to have acted knight errant in this way, if you're following what I'm saying. Yes, of course, yeah. So, and of course, um, in your own autobiography, she, um, the, the final third is really given over to your, um, your relationship and then, the, um, and then the, the production of the autobiography as well. Um, and also, of course, you, you bringing, bring in a, a, some material that you, you were unable to publish for various reasons uh, in 2001. Looking back on the, on, on, does it feel like 20 years since you published the, the biography? Yes, it does. I mean, 
before we talk about what I left out, if anything, and what I might revise, maybe I could say a little bit about writing it at all. Yes, please do. Um, well, it was a great honor and a great privilege and a terrific challenge. Uh, I had taken early retirement at 51 from academic life. I did not have any particular prospect, any particular um, task in view. I was jumping in the dark, if you're following me. Mm. Um, and when it became apparent that this was a possibility because my civil partner and I, Jim O'Neill, and I had become, without particularly willing it or wanting it, uh, Damaris's carers. This was something John Bailey wished upon us in a way and an honor we didn't feel we could refuse, albeit we knew nothing about how to look after someone with Alzheimer's. And in aggregate, uh, they lived with us here in Wales for about eight months, which is not nothing. Mm. And it's especially not nothing if you're researching someone's life at the same time as you're helping to get them dressed in the morning, if you're following this. So it was hugely challenging from every point of view, but um, I had a, a kind of astonishing luck. Maybe I could talk about writing it. Uh, if you yes, didn't. of course, and the, re the research process, and there's there's so much, of course, that you years of years of work and writing and research that went into it. So I'd love to hear something about yeah, that. My friend Sir Michael Holroyd asked me how long it had taken, and I said, "Well, the writing was only four years, but." After all, I had been researching her novels for the previous 25 years. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, in a sense, it took that long. I had no idea whether I could write a biography. I'd never done one. I'd never thought of doing one. So I didn't show any publisher. I wrote the first seven chapters on my own um, with a literary agent backing me, but neither of us knowing whether I could do it. And um, I wrote up to Frank Thompson's death. And I tried, I decided that my way of attempting to do this, I talked to John Sutherland, who was a friend and who was writing Stephen Spender's biography at the time. Um, I decided that I would try and root every chapter in an institution like Froebel or Badminton, mm. or as it were, quote unquote, Irishness, or UNRWA, um, I didn't know if that would work. And I did the first seven chapters. Iris incidentally found those seven chapters and wrote, scribbled on them. I, I think the scribblings are, are in Kingston. They seem to be uh, kindly and well-disposed scribblings, as far as I can work out. She was getting more and more into confusion at that point. So I did seven chapters and this is slightly strange to say, maybe slightly spooky to say, but it nonetheless is the case. I had the most astonishing luck um, in writing this with material appearing just in time. For example, I wrote the seven chapters, Frank had died. And David, I got a letter out of the blue from David Hicks's son, Tom, saying, would I like to see 30 years of Iris's letters to um, 
his father, David. I said, well, yes, I think you I might. You can't turn that down, can you? <laughs> that came at precisely the point yeah. when I'd done seven chapters. In the same way, I'd written um, the Hicks material and Jeremy Adler asked me whether I would like to see Franz Steiner's diaries and journals, albeit they were in German. That came at exactly the right moment. As I was finishing the book, um, Canetti's daughter, Joanna, asked me whether I might like to see her father's writings on Dame Iris from the forthcoming, what became, um, what is it called? Party in the Blitz. Thank you, Party in the Blitz. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, and although they were scandalous and shocking and deeply upsetting to read, everything seemed to arrive at the right moment. Uh, I didn't just have luck with my sources. I also had a sort of astonishing luck with, um, in other ways. For example, in badminton in 1998, three of Iris's teachers were still alive not just alive, but sane, helpful, mm. wrote and answered letters. When one of them died, John Bailey said facetiously, died? I'm glad to know it still happens. <laughs> because they all seem to live to be about 100. Um, so, um, yes, I also had an astonishing luck with research assistants who were all of them old friends, uh, especially, uh, I would like to name one, um, Jane Jante. Um, I, I read in Iris's journal, she said something like, James has died, Olive has written to me. First event of my adult life. I had no idea who James was, I had no idea who Olive was, but I was on my way to Belfast where I met Cleaver and Sybil, Iris's first cousin, she said, and they said, oh, James Scott, his widow Olive must still be alive. So Jane Jante went through, this was the time when there were still telephone directories, all the telephone directories for Ireland, North and South, and discovered that there were four Olive Scots alive. We wrote to them all, and James's widow said, wrote back saying, Oh, well, I have James's diaries for 1938 when he was writing to Iris and semi-engaged. Would you like to see them? So through Jane, we actually found the right person. I'm probably giving you a picture of this. You are, yes, amazing. And, and did, did, did you already know some of these people or, or were they just connections that were made via others? So, for example, the, the letters and the, the letters that came in, were you just contacted out of the blue or was there more, knew, more behind I knew, it? I knew none of these people. Yeah. Um, except for my research assistants. But bear in mind that as soon as um, I'd done chapter seven and the book was uh, marketed and placed, there was a huge amount of publicity. Yes, sure. And it didn't stop. And it was fairly terrifying because I knew that I had to tell it like it was. Um, I think you ask about things I said and wrote and things I didn't write. Uh, a very close and old friend said to me, are you going to suppress the uncomfortable because you love her? I took that to heart and I decided I will not suppress 
anything that is painful for me. John Bailey helped me with that. He said there is a style and a tone through which one can say anything, but you have to find the style and tone. Um, at the same time, I also decided I would not hurt survivors. I would not hurt John wittingly. I would not hurt Philip Foote wittingly. So things that didn't have to be said immediately could wait until I wrote Family Business, if I'm making sense. Yes, of course, yeah. But it seemed to me perfectly proper to hurt myself, but not to hurt others. And were there, were there difficult decisions to be made about material that, that found its way into the biography and material that perhaps didn't? Well, John Bailey and Philippa Foote were the two people who read the entire draft. And they had given me so much help and they were friends. I was fond of them. Um, so I took their, uh, their advice, their counsel, their thoughts, their suggestions on board. John had almost none. He didn't want me to mention that Iris's mother, Rini, so-called Irene, mm. um, was probably alcoholic or that she had Alzheimer's. So I didn't mention those things, but I can see no reason now not to. Philippa Foote had really, really passionate and strong reservations about Iris's Communist Party connections. They'd shared this flat in the war. Sure, yeah. it's in Seaforth, yeah. Precisely so. Yeah. Um, and the fact that Philippa's, Philippa's sister lived there for the, the next 60 years and gave me a, a lot of help, Marion. She had found Communist Party graffiti on the wall, quite low down. So she, she assumed that the, that the the comrades all sat on the floor for meetings. I didn't mention that because I didn't want to hurt Philippa. Of course, yeah. But uh, uh, many of these things, and we could come to others, came into um, uh, family business. I, I'd like to mention one other piece of good luck, or two other pieces of good luck. Jane Jante, whom I said is this brilliant sleuth um, who um, discovered uh, Oliver, Olive Scott when I was writing Frank's biography, Frank Thompson this is, it was clear that he'd run, ran into uh, a group of uh, SOE operatives who'd been parachuted into Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, the, the border was ambiguous. She, within a few hours, tracked down all their names and details. Uh, so this sort of good luck uh, I had plenty of. Um, and there's one final example I wanted to share with you. Stephen Spencer's older brother, Humphrey, was of huge help to me. And when I mentioned to him that Iris was in the Magpie Players. Do you remember this episode? Yes, indeed. And that she complained that just before the war, picture posts had arrived and wasted their time taking photographs the whole afternoon. I didn't have the photographs, of course. Humphrey was a photographer for picture post. He said, what you need to do is ring Halton Getty and ask for the negatives. So I did. 
mm. and they were all there and they had never been developed. And for, I think, a fee of 600 pounds, I was able to get worldwide rights. Um, so they're in the book, again, by uh, some astonishing serendipity and, and good luck. Yeah, and, and it is wonderfully illustrated as well, isn't it? The, uh, uh, the biography, there's some, you know, at the time, as you say, plenty of unknown um, pictures of, you know, Iris and her, and her circle that had never come to light before. Exactly so. And she had been seen, I think, by me too, uh, as a sort of uh, uh, blue stocking, someone who'd lived a quiet, retiring life in Oxford. And I was determined to show her as anything but. Yes. Yeah. I was determined that, that, that the readership would understand her Communist Party period. I think it's important. And by the way, there is probably more in Moscow. I m missed by a few months the tightening up of restrictions on this kind of material, which, which undoubtedly does survive. Um, um, I wanted to emphasize her time with UNRWA, those two years, which were not known, her time at the Royal College of Art. I didn't want to just present a, a St. Anne's Don and um, a scholar. Of course, and it, it, this, you know, Iris as a multifaceted um, writer, and um, and as, as you say, so so much more um, comes out very strongly. And I suppose one one of the highlights of of going back and, and looking at the biography now is um, you were the first person to to make use of the journals, um, which are now, of course, in in uh, the archive of Kingston University. That looking through those must have been a revelation for you. Yes, and a very un uh, not altogether comfortable one. Of course, yeah. I had unquestionably idealized her, um, uh, which I don't regret. I, I think it's better to begin from that point of view. Uh, but I remember saying to John Bailey, was Iris a vamp in her youth? And he replied studiously, uh, he said, well, Possibly, but an unconscious vamp, he said, which is even more deadly than a conscious one. <laughs> I, I couldn't get my head around it. I still have problems, actually. Uh, I respect her and love her and honor her. And I can understand being in love with two people. But I literally don't know quite what it means to say you're in love with six or eight people. I think for, yeah, I think for the majority of... I, I bequeath that to you, Miles, to work it out. <laughs> and I think for the, the vast majority of people, that it's it's something that it is difficult to, to comprehend, really, and and, uh, and, uh, and think about. And especially the, the kind of the, the public image of, of Dame Iris as she was in the 80s and 90s, of course, um, up, up to her death. And then the publication of the, of the biography, and as well as, of course, um, the film coming out in 2001 as well, and, and, and John's uh, and John's three books. It really did change public perception almost overnight, didn't it, within that year of, of, what, of who and what she was. Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, I think, it, I believe it's now called polyamorousness, uh, and that together with gender fluidity, which is another kind of cant phrase of the time, I think make her extremely relevant mm. now and the near future. Um, she, 
anything but a blue stocking. She looks like a pioneer, I think, and, and a, a sort of champion of, of a new way of living, as it were. Yes, and of course, since the since the publication of the biography, there's been so much more that's come to light to sort of solidify that vision of her. Um, of course, the, the letters um, to Bridget Brophy, of course, um, that um, I think they, they came to light after 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 the biography, didn't they? And again, that's an, another the facet. They came, they came to public light. Uh, yes, yes. I, 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 I um, Michael Levy whom I never met, alas, uh, was very helpful in, in uh, my, my writing about all that. Mm. Um, yes, I mean, you mentioned the film. Um, maybe we should say, uh, I should say a few words about it. Or... Please do. I think it was made with good intent and good heart. And Richard Eyre, whom I met many times, um, had a mother who suffered from Alzheimer's and I think he wanted to do his best with this film, but I regret it um, because I think it has uh, tended to solidify a, a picture of her, of Dame Iris, as either uh, in British idiom bonkers or bonking, in American screwing or screwy. Um, there's almost nothing she actually ever said. In it. There's very little that she actually ever said and almost nothing she wrote in that film. Um, Her productive middle period is, 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 is moved over very swiftly, isn't it? Well, it's very difficult to make a film about a writer. It's much, sure. for obvious reasons, it's much easier to make a biopic about a composer because you can, uh, you, you can use the music, which is why um, Death in Venice is changed from being about, the, I mean, I'm speaking of the film, from being about a writer to being about a composer for that reason. Um, but I, re I regretted it. And I was in a, uh, a gallery in South Kensington when with the, uh, an exhibition of Harry Weinberger's uh, pictures and there was a pastel of Dame Maris and I overheard one lady say to another who is that and the second one said oh you know that's the writer who went mad well I think that that is not how those of us who loved her would like her to be remembered in a sense it's almost an irrelevance her last four years mm. it was how she ended it may be how you or I will end but we would hope that it will not be the way we are spoken of for the next 50 years, if you follow me. Of course, yes. And I think that's beginning to change now, um, 20, 20 plus years since, since, since her death. I think the, um, the, the film has maybe had its, had its time and um, people are now going back to the novels and, and, and seeing them afresh, which is wonderful. Talking about the novels, of course, part of the biography did also highlight the un, her un, one unpublished novel, that, um, that you were able to comment on. I wonder if you could say a little bit about Jerusalem um, and you know, her thoughts about, about writing it and, and what you made of it as well. I can say a little, but I can't say a lot because I, I don't have any notes, if I even made any notes. Mm. If I did make any notes, they will be in the Kingston archive. So you will have them as it were. I'll have to go and dig them out, yeah. 
uh, if they exist, uh, when I read the paragraph that I wrote about it in the biography, um, there's very little that I remember. Uh, what I recall is it was strung together by string with a fierce note on the front, not for publication ever. And I remember my heart sinking. I, I, where, as I read it, I thought it was dreadful, actually. I think there are some posthumous publications which actually hurt the, the writer. There was a long debate with Ian Forster about Morris. I think it's turned, it's redounded to his credit in the end that he did write Morris. Even yeah, that's a, novel, in, that's a novel very much ahead of its time, I think. It's a novel very much ahead of its time. Yeah. And, and 50, exactly 50 years after Forster died, I think it's come into its own in some strange way. What I remember about Jerusalem was that none of the parts seemed to hang together. There was this sexually potent 80 year old hero. Uh, uh, you would have to go to the live to, to find out um, what I read at the time. There was a tiny bit that I was able to recall when I wrote Family Business, which is that she recreated Seaforth, the flat, the wartime flat, in the novel. There's no question about it. But they never had a telephone, she or Philippa. And in the novel, uh, not merely is there a telephone, but it has, this is 1958, think about this, uh, a primitive um, voicemail. Mm -hmm. uh, she has a, telef uh, a, a, a recorder, a tape recorder with cassettes, you know, tapes, uh, somehow tied to the phone and able to take messages. And also, I think that I'm not wrong in remembering this. There was um, mooted a Thames barrier in the novel. Other than that, there was a kind of mute or deaf mute Irish woman who ends the last scene in Dublin involved this woman. There was these the Guild Socialists who are involved in planning for an ideal building or an ideal town. And one would love to read that, one would love to know more. She thought of this and she referred to it as her socialist novel. Mm, yes. Yeah. One would like to know what exactly was she thinking of at that time. And, I, and also why, why it wasn't destroyed when so much, she destroyed so much else in the 1980s. Um, why, why, she, why it was still kept. Which is... well, she may not even have remembered it was there, to be honest. I, yes. I'm not cynical, I'm, I'm being factual. Sure. In what she was scared of in the 1990s, forgive me, uh, um, was uh, her first appointed biographer get, getting the wrong end of things, mm. Anne Wilson. I doubt whether she even remembered that she drafted this book, this novel. Um, the, the parts did not cohere, D different bits, Dublin, the aged prepotent man, the, the Jerusalem socialists with their plans for a building. It didn't gel, it didn't come together. The only other thing that I can remember thinking, if this is of any possible interest to future scholars, is I was very, very grateful that 
that it had fallen by the wayside. Mm. Because yeah, I some, think, yeah. Oh, please go on. I was going to say, I think some, some, of the, some of the names of the characters get recycled in, in a severed head as well, don't they? Exactly right. In yeah. rather different characters is what I remember. Georgie Sands and Martin Lynch Gibbon. Mm. Um, it was like she liked the names, even though she didn't like what they were originally uh, developed. All yeah. the characters. Sure. I don't know if that gives you an idea, but I, I promise you I don't have anything hidden. <laughs> no, no, no. There's no, no suggestion that you do, but it's, it's great. To, it's great to know a, bit, a little bit about the uh, about the lost it, work. I think. It is deeply mysterious that it has d disappeared. Um, and oh. for the record, and this is the only working hypothesis that I have, uh, John Bailey was approached or even besieged by libraries looking for material. And there was one occasion when I was very shocked and upset that he had swept the floor in the study. And many of the working notes towards metaphysics as a guide to morals had gone to an American university, probably Iowa. Mm. But, but my point here being not all, just the ones that were on the floor. So, those scholars wishing to research how metaphysics as a guide to morals got written and got changed and, and evolved may well have to look in more than one place. I suspect Kingston and Iowa, for example. Yes, so of course. Yeah. This is the, my, the, my best guess that it went in the same way. Let's talk a little bit about, um, about family business then, um, because you know, there was quite, although, you know, you, you wrote this, you know, wonderful biography of Dame Iris, as you say, over several years, but really it, it, it took it took far longer than that. What, what was the spark for you that, uh, that that set you on thinking about your own family history and, and then later and then your life? Well, I think it was my beloved sister, my only sister, Prue, who died eight years ago. Uh, I, in a rash moment, I promised her that I would write this and ah, indeed right. dedicated to her. And I, I'm a man of my word. So I had promised that I would write it and I did. It was the hardest thing I've ever done actually. It has various parts to it. Uh, the part writing about De Maris was okay. I could do that. Mm. The part writing about my ancestry was absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, it turns out that we have family papers going back to the 1860s in Paris. My great-grandparents came from Paris in, uh, when, when the Prussians invaded in 1870. I'd always known that because my great-aunt and uncle lived to be 100 and told me a lot about it. Um, but it turned out we had a lot of papers. That was fascinating to me and yes. I think of some interest to others. Um, writing about my own childhood was not fun. That, that uh, was the, the, the painful, the painful uh, experience. Painful, but um, yeah. I would like to say that it was therapeutic. Mm. I'm not sure that it was actually. Uh, um, Alice Thomas Ellis, who was a great, great friend, the, the writer, Anna Haycroft, her other name. She said, people say that a trouble shared is a trouble halved. But I think a trouble shared is a trouble doubled. 
Anyway, yes. Um, so um, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm happy that I wrote it and I'm happy that, it, that it's done and I'm happy that it's been um, kindly received. As it say. certainly has. Yes, it's, had some, it's had some wonderful reviews, but it's, in a sense, it's not just about you either. It's about a particular moment in time and it's, yes. about, and it's about marginality. And it's also, and it's about deracination. It's about so many key themes of the 20th and indeed moving into the 21st century. I think resonate with so many people. Keep talking. <laughs> well, we're gonna have a link to, um, so people can buy the book themselves and read about it. But uh, is that how you see it as well? That you, you see yourself as caught up in so many of these major shifts and changes within 20th century society? Um... Well, it's a kind question, it's a generous question, uh, uh, but but you know yourself that being alive isn't quite like that. It, things happen one after another. They do, yeah. And um, it's only later one tries, as it were, to, to detect a pattern. But I'm proud of being involved in gay liberation at the very beginning. I was co-editor of the very first uh, gay magazine in Britain. Mm. Before Gay News, incidentally, 1971-72. And, um, and that was still a time when, if you were gay, you could be, and were likely to be, harassed by the police, who, uh, who had a policy of entrapment, sending out handsome officers to, uh, to, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad that I was part of that. And, and uh, indeed I solicited Damaris's contribution and she wrote very interestingly about it. She, she didn't like gay ghettos, mm. but of course she was immensely um, uh, keen that homosexuality should become rather like preferring tea over coffee. Uh, not some big deal, and certainly not something that should be prosecuted or where. Uh, merely, merely a preference. Precisely, well, yeah. well said. And indeed, um, it's one of the astonishing things about my, my lifespan. I mean, I'm now 75, that the law should have changed so much, the Conservative government should have legalized gay marriage. All of this is quite, quite wonderful and magical. Uh, and I think she, she did approve and would have approved. Yeah, she didn't want to see anybody ghettoized, did she? She didn't want to see any special ghettoization of women or, or Jews or homosexuals or anybody. That's well said. Yeah, she's exactly. very much sure. Uh, and I think that's also, you, you mentioned this in the, in, in family business as well. I think that this is what led you to her work. You saw this, you saw her, her fiction as being very not just complimentary but I think um, chiming with a, a lot of your own views on life. I think that's that's spot on I think that's right. I also thought her fiction was completely weird. <laughs> uh, well, some of and it is. Way, yeah. And in a way I still think so. Um, it is very very strange and I didn't know where it was coming from and rather like 
Antonia Byatt, who was the supervisor on, on my doctorate. I wanted to know where all this was coming from. Mm. Um, and it was of interest. Um, I, I, I wondered if I should share with you some of the things that I couldn't write in the biography, but I could write about in um, family business. I, I think that our listeners would be delighted if you would. Uh, I'm going to have a look at my list here. Um, some of them were small things. Um, she has a character who keeps recurring. The first time is Felix in an unofficial rose, who is, as it were, um, loyally in love with the same woman, the same married woman usually, um, for decades. Mm. And John's mother was very angry about this and, and thought that she was secretly writing about John's middle brother, Michael, who fell in love in 1946 with a lady who later became Anne, Duchess of Norfolk, and stayed in love with her for 60 years. Mm. And the figure recurs in Nuns and Soldiers, where the Count, so-called, the Polish guy is in love with Anne, if I'm remembering accurately now. I think I am. Yes. Uh, and I couldn't talk about that because Michael, John's middle brother, was still alive and it would have hurt them both. And they were friends. So that is not in the biography, but it is in family business. And you also um, have some more to say about the relationship between Murdoch and Canetti as well, don't you? In, in I have more to say about that. Yeah. I, I have more to say about John. Uh, I guess the polite word is inaccuracy. Uh, John doesn't always tell the truth. I mean, he claims, for example, that in 1956, Iris was against fox hunting. The truth of the matter was that he had to hide as a secret the rifle that he kept for shooting foxes because she would have been so disgusted by it. She loathed the taking of life of animals. Mm. No conceivable way she was against fox hunting at that, uh, at that point. Um, anyway, this is perhaps by the way, as they say, but he is not an entirely accurate reporter of events. The... I, think, I think that comes through in, 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 the, in the last um, volume of the, uh, of the biography as well. It comes, comes through a little bit. It's a sort of, um, I'm not going to say it's a fantasy, but there are elements that have clearly been slightly fictionalised, shall we say. Or prettified, yes. Yes. I mean, uh, one example that I write about at some length in family business is his uh, portrayal of their civil wedding, which he says his mother, Olivia, congratulated Iris's mother on marrying John because she didn't realize Iris's mother looked very youthful, that it <laughs> confused the mother with the daughter. This is complete rubbish. There was a, a Bailey relative 
at the wedding who confused the two. It was Aunt Florice from Chicago who just flown in. Right. But in fact, John's mother and Iris knew each other and were enemies at that point. So John's account is somewhat cleaned up and prettified. Mm. And it seemed to me that as he was no longer there to be offended in any way, there was nothing to stop the truth being told, as it were, about these these matters. So forgive that that diversion for a moment, but but I think it's important. The the, the new material on or, or your sort of um, your your thoughts, shall we say, about so the relationship between um, between Damaris and uh, Elias Canetti. Those find their way in, in in quite strong terms, I think, into into family business. Why did you? that you had to hold back in um in Irish medical life and then and then bring, bring this bring the relationship back into family business uh, I, I, well it dawned upon me over 20 years ago that there were grounds for thinking that Canetti had used Iris sexually quote unquote as a boy mm. it would have felt to me grossly inappropriate to have written about that within two years of, of her life. Right, yeah. But I, I didn't want, as it were, to die without sharing the process by which I came to that conclusion. And it's up to other scholars to decide whether this is true or false and whether it matters or not. I think it is true and I think it does matter. Um, and I leave it to, to the reader to, to make up his or her own mind. Yeah, I suppose it ties into the, the wider question about her being enthralled by older power and more powerful men throughout her life. Absolutely, it, it leads into that. And it also addresses the question of why she keeps on and on, if you go into the letters, saying, uh, I'm not a female homosexual, I'm a male homosexual, and I play the younger part. Why did she bother to, 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 to share this thought? So, one, you could say that those, probably the, she may not have thought that those letters would ever come to, uh, come into the public eye, I suppose. Of course, she does also in her, in, in her relationship with Bridget Brophy, dress up and, and, um, and play the man and uh, all sorts of, all sorts of interesting uh, situations they find themselves in based on um, the raffle stories, uh, which, uh, yeah, again, so, some of them, of course, um, published in uh, in Living on Paper, the letters collection. But there's so much still there, isn't there, to be uh, excavated, I suppose. But you were asking me about Canetti, so I was answering sure. about Canetti. Yes, yes, of course. Um, you asked the question about whether she'll last. Can I say a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's that, that actually came from, um, I actually asked a few people that, are, that have been listening to all the podcasts and I said that, you know, you and I are going to be speaking. And, they, and one of the questions was, do you think um, that um, Damaris's work like, like Jane Austen's, Virginia Woolf's, will stand the test of time? Well, I don't, I'm not sure what my opinion matters, to be honest, because it either will or won't. And you, you're a young person, so you, you will be there to see. But of course, I think and hope that it will matter. Um, she was asked this question herself, you may or may not remember, and she gave 
what I found a memorable answer. She said when she was a 20 year old, everyone thought that Charles Morgan was the writer who would survive. And Evelyn War was this frivolous writer on the absolute margins who will be forgotten forever. And 60 years later, War's status, prestige grows year by year. Charles Morgan is totally forgotten except by the French, where he appears on the baccalaureate. <laughs> um, so in other words, none of us know. Sure. But I want to mention two things, which I think, uh, I hope are optimistic um, flags. One is something we've, you and I have already touched on today, this question of gender fluidity or polyamorousness. It's very much in the news again. And she could be seen as a pioneer, despite the London Review of Books, which is very down on her on, on this matter. Uh, another, another aspect of her thinking, which seems to me absolutely timely, her emphasis on Simone Weil's attention, attention, chimes completely with the cult of mindfulness and awareness. But uh, this, this question about the connection between attention and spirituality, um, because of course, I think, would it be fair to say that um, she had an influence on your own sort of spiritual and, and uh, beliefs and-, and uh, Enormously, yeah. enormously. But can we go back for just one second? Please, yes. And talk about um, her longevity, as it were. I, I was very, very impressed and touched by Leo Robeson. I was telling you earlier, Miles, when we were chatting before this podcast, in the piece he wrote in the New Statesman, and he in he lists four possible aspects of her work and her thought, which it seems to him are consequential and may have air miles. Mm. One is romance that defies the boundaries of class, ethnicity, age, nationality, and legality. So romance, the fact that she's championing the writing of romance. The second one is the toxicity of patriarchy, especially the male inclination to master inner chaos. And one might instance here the, the figures whom I, and I suspect not only I, derive from Canetti, like Michel Fox and Charles Araby. Julius King. Julius King, well yeah. said, exactly Some, right. Yeah. Um, and then thirdly, he suggests the suffering of refugees and their immigrants which is deep in her work and was deep in her life. Sure. Yeah. Lastly, and this is his uh, list, not my list, the long-term damage caused by childhood abuse and neglect, which if he's right, and I guess the, a word child would be one example, um, is very interesting because of course she had a notoriously very happy, mm. serene childhood and she was enormously loved. So in the fiction, I think the origins are there right from very early on in the Sandcastle, for example, you know, the damage that's done to those two young children. 
Very good point. Yes, you're, you're thinking of, of, of Moore's children, you mean? Moore's children in the sandcastle, yeah. Yes, indeed. And the, and the tears of blood scene, which is, I think, very, you know, for that sort of novel, I think it's, a, you know, really disturbing, uncanny moment in that fiction. Very uncanny and very disturbing, as you say. So, so far as Buddhism is, is concerned, and my partner and I both became Buddhist partly under her mentorship, but I, I, I was attracted by two aspects of her thought, uh, always have been and still am. One was her championing of the ethics of Christianity. She said, these are the ethics that this planet needs. And the second was her stupefaction at the entrance requirements that you have to believe in virgin birth and resurrection. And she said that Buddhism offers to Christianity the example of one of the five great world religions that doesn't have any belief system, as it were. There's no God even. Uh, and she called this demythologization. She thought that Buddhism could help to demythologize Christianity of these weird entrance requirements and stick to the ethics. Then the second aspect of her championing of Buddhism, which still means a lot to me, is a belief that this may be shocking to some, and if so, I, I don't know if I apologize or not. She said that she thought that God is a profoundly anti-religious idea. The notion that you will be rewarded or punished for your good and bad deeds. Totally missed the point. She was absolutely in favor of and championed the great Christian mystics. Um, St. Teresa, um, St. Dame Julian of, of Norwich, um, who argued that we have to be good for nothing in her view. The notion of punishment or reward is like a, a bribe to a three-year-old. She says you have to be good despite the fact that there isn't anybody there to pat you on the head after you're dead or promise you eternal life. This made complete sense to me. And indeed, uh, we both, my partner and I became, as it were, paid up Tibetan Buddhists nearly 30 years ago and, and have remained so. And she was very interested in this. And this was, in, I think it's in Bruno's dream. Someone says, when you're really friends with somebody, you tend to either to discuss sex or religion. Well, in our case, we discussed religion. We didn't discuss sex. We talked about those matters. We talked about mysticism. Mm. And, and, and um, questions of mysticism and, and the, the Buddhist influence comes in so strongly, doesn't it? Certainly from the late 70s, but you feel it even more, I think, as you go through into the 80s and into the, early the novels of the early 90s. Yes. It's, it's such a, it becomes such an important part of her, her fictional work. Bear in mind that when a they, some film people wanted to make a film of Under the Net. She said, yes, you can do it, but I would have to make it into a Buddhist novel. 
if you look in a life, you you, you, yeah. you can find this. I can't give you the page. And the, the previous novel, which she abandoned, which had the most, the worst prospective title of any novel anybody has ever considered. Would that Our be Lady. Our Lady of the Bosky Gates? Was that the one? Concerned the Dalai Lama. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she was interested in all these matters, even in the 1940s, Miles. So while you're absolutely right, it becomes more public later. Mm. It's a very long-running theme in her life. Yes, and I think it's highlighted in the journals as well, isn't it? Certainly. As far as I remember, yeah. No, that, that's that's fascinating to... Because I think usually Murdoch critics and scholars sort of focus on James Araby in the C2C as being the kind of the, the, the touchstone or the, the, uh, the ignition point for her bringing this in. But as you say, it's, it's, it's far earlier. But I think attention is 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 not different from mindfulness. It's or mindfulness awareness, as as Mahayana Buddhists tend to put it. That's to say, just looking, i.e., not looking in but looking out. It's mm. as simple and simplistic in some sense as that. And that, to that degree, I think of her as a great pioneer. And yes, I won't be here. And nor will you in a hundred years to know, but I think she's going to be around. So clearly, twenty years on since Iris Monica life, at some point there will be another major biography of her life. I, I don't. I think it's impossible there won't be. What do you think the next biographer should look for or focus on? Um, what What does there remain for a future biographer to do? Do you think? Very, very little. I would say. <laughs> I hope but at the same time I'm entirely hospitable and if I'm alive I will give them every possible assistance uh, the first chapter on her Irishness uh, was unquestionably an, a strong element of romanticizing and idealizing I mean her family were low middle class her mother's family, even upper working class, uh, her mother's sister was alcoholic, the three sons, the Bell sons, I've just heard incidentally from one of their children. Um, I, I think I romanticized her Irish background, I followed her, and the her proclivity towards romanticizing, idealizing, um, is of interest and and would take a different kind of um, biographer than I was. I, I don't believe in blackwashing biography, that's to say um, just producing the worst version. Um, but I think a more skeptical approach might be possible and might be helpful also. Mm. Does that make sense? It does indeed, yes. And, um, and uh, as you say, so much um, richness is now in the archive, thanks to you, all your research and, uh, and undertaking. So any, any future biographer certainly has a, uh, an enormous amount to, to thank you for, as indeed um, we all do, all of us who work in, in Murdoch Studies now with um, not just, of course, the biography, but so much else that, that you've produced. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. We, we are in your debt, I think. 
in so many I, ways. I hope so. Um, writing about her was was terrifying, um, but um, it was also uh, wonderful. Good. I'm very very glad to hear it. Well, Peter, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. And um, yeah, on, on our next podcast, uh, we'll be uh, actually in the archive, um, virtually, of course. And I'll be talking to um, the Kings University archivist, Dana, Dana Miller, um, and, uh, the, uh, the instigator of the archive as well, um, and uh, a regular on the podcast, Professor Anne Rowe. So my thanks to um, uh, Professor Peter J. Conradi for uh, joining me today to talk about um, family business and Irish medical life.